Hey guys, I'm Paul Bates and this is the Fermentation Podcast. Join me on this journey to put fermentation into practice, create culture, and revive this lost art that connects all of us to our cultures of the past. Today is Friday, January 30th, 2015, and this is episode number 22. So today we have on the show a woman who comes highly recommended by at least two people I've already had on the show. And when it comes to fermentation and health, Lisa Herndon of Lisa's Counterculture gave a great conversation that I think you'll enjoy. But before we get on the line with Lisa, all the topics and links for today's show will be in the show notes at fermentationpodcast.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, email me at paul at fermentationpodcast.com or go to the website and click on the contact button on the top. You can also connect to me on Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and Twitter. Just go to fermentationpodcast.com and you should see the links in the sidebar. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, just head out to the website and click on the guest button on top and fill out the guest submission form there. So like I said before, Lisa Herndon loves fermentation. She loves getting people healthy with her workshops and has a great recipe book out with tons of fermentation recipes inside. The tagline on her website is, Whole food, add a twist of probiotics, gluten gone. She's more in the paleo slash primal arena, but really just follows the tenet, be mindful and eat real food. She could probably go on for hours talking about fermentation. So with that introduction, hey Lisa, welcome to the Fermentation Podcast. Thanks for having me on the show, Paul. I appreciate it. So I actually was talking to Melanie Hoffman and Karen Ross. So Melanie Hoffman of Pickle Me Too and Karen Ross of the Probiotic Jar. And they had kind of mentioned you. And um, Karen Ross actually sent me your recipe book. Uh, and I've been flipping through it. It's a, a pretty cool little book here. Can you just give the audience maybe just a brief introduction of yourself and what exactly do you do? Sure. So I have a small business in the Bay Area called Lisa's Counterculture. And I am crazy into fermenting and probiotic foods, which is my kind of core love. And it's kind of grown out into just more nourishing gut building foods in general, how to support gut health. And now I do, um, I've got this book out and I teach classes and I work one-on-one with people both um, locally and remotely. And I'm also um, very interested in working with people for kind of a holistic approach to healing themselves to, you know, as much wellness as they possibly can have. So it's been really exciting. It's been a journey of figuring out how we tick. Everyone is so different. Yeah, very cool. It seems like a lot of people that get into this whole thing, you know, maybe they have had health problems or somebody in the family had health problems. I guess me and myself, I kind of got into this whole thing uh, in a roundabout way, but just came to love like all the flavors and, you know, fermentation, obviously beer and cheese and wine and, and all that stuff. How long have you actually been fermenting things? How long has it been? Um, that's a tricky question, I guess. I mean, on purpose fermenting? <laughs> <laughs> I've been uh, purposely fermenting. You know, some things happen on their own spontaneously. But as I first, especially when I first started learning how to work my way in the kitchen. But I've been investigating and checking this out pretty seriously now for about 12 years, maybe a little bit, about 12 years. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I've only been in this in, you know, maybe a few years now, and it just seems like it's just a never-ending learning experience. It is, and it's crazy now with all this information coming out and publications on the microbiome and probiotics, and so it's pretty exciting. Every day you find out new things. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, when I talk to different people to connect what one person says to another person, and, you know, maybe that that's not necessarily correct, or maybe it is. And so anyways, I guess, you know, in terms of fermentation, 
what exactly is like your food philosophy? And um, I was reading a little bit about you. You know, you're kind of paleo, but maybe a little more, uh, I guess, just natural, good tasting food. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, personally, um, I kind of follow a more general paleo template, which I kind of tweak as my body changes and um, what I can tolerate or what I do well on. So the whole idea is to just focus on adding things that make me feel well and trying to avoid things that don't make me feel well. Um, so that's usually just whole foods, whole real foods, but I have to skip, I have to skip gluten and, um, alcohol and a couple of other things. I usually try to minimize soy and things of that nature, but in general with people with, when I work with clients, um, you know, pretty much whatever their diet's at, we just start where that's at and we try to figure out what works best for them. I don't have any agenda that they have, people have to eat a certain way. So if you do, if you do, well with, if you can do well with bread, then more power to you. <laughs> it seems like, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot more people going gluten-free, soy-free. Uh, it probably has to do with, you know, genetically modified and then all the crap that they spray on it and, yeah. and even the way they, they brought up the proteins. But yeah, I mean, there's so many other ways to, to have different things. Like you can make gluten-free bread. No, it's not exactly the same. Uh, I've even seen some sourdough gluten-free breads out there. I've seen those. I haven't tried those, but I do, uh, I'm a big fan of the fermented doses, which is kind of similar tasting as to a sourdough bread. And I have, I cover that in the book. I was going to say, I, when I was flipping through it this morning, uh, I, I love Indian food. You know, anytime I can go out to an Indian restaurant, yeah, the doses, those are so good. But uh, yeah, I was flipping through your recipe book here. Uh, at least, yeah, maybe I'll even just kind of start with that, asking you about the doses. I would almost think they wouldn't ferment that fast, but I think you had said something like 24 hours. Well, it's a couple, it's a couple stages. So I do it, um, I'm pretty, it's, it's pretty hands off. But you're basically just taking um, a particular, I usually have recommendations for what type of lentil and what type of rice to use. And you're soaking it together in a jar with a um, salt brine. And I usually stick in fenugreek as well. And then you let that ferment soak. And then you take that out and you blend into a batter. And that batter goes for another 24 hours. And it grows like a sourdough. So you definitely want to make sure you use a jar with a lot of room for it to grow because it'll like triple in size. Uh, I know exactly what you're saying there. I have a sourdough on the counter right now. And, you know, I've been kind of messing around with it. It's not gluten-free, of course, but it's amazing when you take half of that out and then add it and it just explodes overflowing the jar. Yeah, you can do that sourdough in the probiotic jar as well um, with an airlock, but you have to be careful because if you don't watch it, you can have stuff coming out the airlock. I've had that happen. <laughs> oh, okay. and It looks cool, but it's not so fun to clean up. <laughs> yeah, that was another thing. Um that I had on a list of things that I just wanted to bring up. I was going to ask you, what's your favorite method and why, you know, for fermenting vegetables or making things like sauerkraut, kimchi, or just pickles in general? You know, some people use mason jars, which I kind of started with. And then just recently I got into the probiotic jar. What's, you know, the different ways that you like? So I started with a mason jar way back when, and I didn't have that much success. I mean, it was kind of hit or miss. And mostly when I fermented, my family wouldn't eat. (laughs) That was an issue. It just doesn't taste the same. So when I found that um, this anaerobic jar with the airlock system, that just kind of just changed. It was just night and day for me. So all of a sudden, things tasted well. It always tasted great. I always had consistent results, and I wasn't tossing anything. And then the storage of it was, you you can store it for a really long time which is a huge um, benefit, especially if you're making sauerkraut, which needs to cure. So you don't want that to go bad. 
And the other benefit of using that jar is I didn't have to use as much salt because I'm not a big fan of whey for fermenting. Um, so this was just, for me, it was just a life-changing thing for fermentation. I don't have a problem with people who want to use other types of jars. If that's what works for them, that's great. But personally, I just hate having things not come out well. And, and then I've had clients who don't tolerate ferments that are made in mason jars or just even phyto jars without an airlock. Yeah, from looking at it and, you know, using the uh, phyto jars, I guess I have more I, what they're called kilner jars, which I guess are similar. Mm-hmm. But the, the lid works just the same. And it's nice because it's actually all made of glass. I remember I, I kind of tossed around the idea of trying to make my own, you know, out of the plastic lid or maybe Tadler lids. But then there was kind of a question on maybe formaldehyde and yes, things like LA. that. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I just went back to the mason jar method just because it was all glass. But, um, yeah, I've been messing around with the probiotic jar, which is, is very cool. It actually keeps your stuff submerged. And, you know, it, I guess it almost uh, acts like the ceramic crock, like an airlock. Yeah, it's very similar. But the upside is that um, if you ever did get a mold in there, because sometimes there's, it is possible. It's, I've never had it happen to me, but I've heard reports. It is possible to get mold with an anaerobic jar. If you started with something that had mold on it, it can you know, obviously do fine. It usually will get killed off, but there's been a, there's been a couple of times where it's not. And so once with glass, you can actually sanitize it. With um the mate with the crocs, you really can't. Once it's on the stone, you're pretty much always going to have it there. Those spores are pretty much impossible to eradicate, from what I understand. Yeah, from what I've seen, there was somebody was throwing around a a picture on Facebook in you know the fermentation world about uh, bleach doesn't kill mold, but if you use like a a strong vinegar. Maybe that would help. No, it doesn't. Mold's becoming a huge issue for a lot of people with their homes. And I've had people who've had to leave their homes and all their belongings to actually move because the aflatoxins in their home was just such a high amount. They got sick and it's really devastating. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine if it's in your house. I mean, let alone just like a little ferment yeah. in the fridge. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I guess I'll have to look into that more. Say, you know, you're making like pickles and things. How long do you keep these things around? Like uh, maybe dill pickles, I guess, and sauerkraut. So how long, I mean, how long do I keep them around because we haven't eaten them? Or how long can I possibly store them? Uh, I guess maybe both. Well, so pickles are, I don't have an extra refrigerator for cold storage or a basement. So pickles are kind of a, a prized possession. So during the summer, we'll make batches and eat through them. And then I usually try to get a couple of jars going so that will last to keep us till the next season. And during that time, they're kind of parceled out very carefully <laughs> since I can't, they'd only grow for you know a short period of time. So I can't just make them whenever I want, but they'll keep from season to season if they're kept, if they're stored properly. And I have a pretty good post on how to store ferments on my website as well. I have to put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Cause I get asked that a lot. <laughs> oh Yeah. I know um, pickles don't last very long around here. My wife eats them. <laughs> yeah, and you have to hide them. So I have, like right now I have these really great um, kimchi Brussels sprouts, which I have tucked in the back of the refrigerator. So they'll be available for this class I'm doing on Saturday. Yeah, during your workshops, because I know um, it looks like you do quite a few workshops in the San Francisco area. Mm-hmm. What do you usually tell people? Do you have a lot of people that have never fermented anything, you know, for the first time in their workshops? Or? Often for the, like the one I'm doing is coming up one called Back to Basics. A lot of those people are all new. And so they may have eaten fermented foods, but most have not made anything. Um, typically, somebody who comes to one workshop will come to a series because they just get kind of hooked. You know, it is. You kind of get into it. And it's so much fun to make your own. 
So, yeah. So then like for something more like dosa chutneys or um, some of these other classes that are a little bit more specific, they'll come back because they want to learn how to do that specific type of beverage or things like that. So we get a lot of newbies and it's lucky for them. I wish I had this class when I was first starting out so I didn't have to waste all that time making really junky looking tasting ferments. <laughs> yeah, cause I know how some of the, the newbies kind of feel because, you know, when you're first starting out and say you don't take a class on it and you're doing it by yourself, kind of like reading things online, I guess taking a workshop, it, it does make you feel like, all right, I just did this or I seen somebody do this. So maybe it gives you that confidence to actually try it. Oh, yeah. Well, you get to, I mean, I cover you know, the science behind it and go through the steps. And I usually try to have the stages available so you can taste it when it's done. So you can kind of know when you made something what it should taste like. Um, and then hopefully have some things that are more unusual that you would not normally see that you can try. Because I don't like to make stuff if I haven't it's, I'm more inspired to make something if I've tried it somewhere and I know I like it. So what are some of the, maybe the weirder things that you've made in the past? <laughs> um, well, like like these Brussels sprouts, these kimchi Brussels sprouts, how often do you see that? Or even fermented, I have fermented watermelon radish and Spanish black radish going right now too. And those are really good. I fermented, um, so a lot of the chutneys are really fun. Even for, like even for kombucha, which is not an anaerobic ferment, but I'll do like kind of, celery cucumber apple together just kind of unusual combinations of flavors that people hadn't thought to try and they get all excited or even bikavas using golden beets or the um, chioga beets rather than red beets has a different flavor profile yeah i noticed that i went to the farmer's market not that long ago and i see these lighter beets and i was i was thinking oh that's interesting because normally we'll actually throw beets into our juices in the morning yeah they're really good fermented and especially if you get that ratio right i have a really good recipe in there because i've had most commercial beet kvass is just kind of like beet water it's just fermented for a couple of days um, but this stuff is really potent and it stores a it actually just gets better almost like a wine it just gets better with age do you normally make this stuff in you know large amounts like a gallon size or just mason jars or no, i never use mason jars at this point but um the the beak of us i normally make in at least a three or four liter because you're going to lose you're trying to get the liquid off and you have to have about a third of the space taken up with the beets so you want to make sure you get enough kvass drawn off of it to make it worth your while yeah true you know I know I've, I've heard some people like um, Sander Katz say he'll have like a 50 gallon drum of, you know, different ferments that like um, what, radish, fermented radish. Yeah. Kind of crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I don't think I'd be able to go through that amount, but maybe if you had a, a large garden. Yeah. We don't, we actually treat the stuff as condiments in small doses. It's got a ton of bacteria in there. I'm not a big fan of overdoing anything. Yeah. I feel the same. And I guess just having a little bit of flavor here and there, you know, added to things. It's nice to have like a little bit of this and a little bit of that rather than making a, a whole lot of just one thing. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, flipping through your book here, you have um, different sections. Let me just go go through section one, ferments, and then you have um, ferment companions. And then there's also a bunch of how-tos. And uh, this is um, Lisa's Counterculture second edition. It's very cool how you actually made it like a, a flip book. I think that was a great idea rather than... Because, you know, you open the book and it always wants to close. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I've had, I think that's one of the reasons why this book doesn't sell on a wider marketplace because bookstores and places don't want to carry it since it's not bound, it's spiral bound. Um, but I figured it's such a niche kind of product. I was just going to do it the way I wanted a book, which I like a book that lies flat. <laughs> do you also sell the ebook version of this? Yes, I have a PDF. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, going through the ferments, I mean, you have lots of different um 
lots of different things here. Beverages, vegetables, dairy ferments, starches. Uh, on the, the beverages, I was kind of curious because there's so many different fermented beverages. Like you have kombucha, bikavas, water kefir, ginger ale. You know, even so out of all of those and maybe all the different beverages that you've made, do you have any favorites that you have all the time or are you always just trying something new? Um, I rotate through ferment seasonally. I personally don't drink water kefir very much because the sugar content's higher and I have to regulate my blood sugar pretty tightly. So that one's more of a summer ferment. I do that mostly for friends and family. Um, you know, my kids and husband really like that. The kombucha, I same thing. I don't really drink a whole lot of it. I really prefer the Bikafos tonic or even the kraut juice. I have a recipe on how to make, um, how to ferment kraut where you get more juice out of it. So I prefer that. Um, or the brine. Those are my, I love brine. That's probably my favorite beverage for a ferment. <laughs> I have yet to actually just drink brine all the time. I always use it in my cooking, like say when I make some rice or something. Yeah. No, it's great for salad dressing. I have like, I think I have a list of, like on the website and then in the book too, I think I have a list of like 10 or 12 things of what to do with your brine. Yeah, that's true. I did see that. And the weirdest that's one that is sounds really weird, but I think it's really good. And I've gotten people addicted to it is, um, <laughs> for is the pickle juice brine for popsicles that sounds interesting yeah it's like on a hot day like having a popsicle with pickle juice is really good oh that you know for maybe myself i would almost kind of cringe at that but maybe i would mix it like half and half yeah, you, so you know when things are frozen you have to intensify the flavor that's why ice cream has so much sugar yeah because you have to it's it kind of gets muted when it's ice when it's cold You'd be surprised. It's actually pretty mild when you're just sucking on it, but it's really um, great because you're getting, you only lose about 10% of the probiotics when you freeze it. Oh, okay. You know, I had that question in my mind uh, a while ago, you know, say uh, I want to freeze like a, a kombucha scoby or just freeze some kombucha. It, it actually does kill some of the, the probiotics in there. Yeah. They say about 10%. I don't know about freezing the culture, how that part does is I've never tried that. But the actual, like, I know I've done kraut, I've done carrots, I've done other things like that, no problem. The texture is not the same. Um, some people think it's fine. I'm kind of sensitive to texture, so I prefer not to freeze ferments, but some people think it's great. Gotcha. You're also saying, you know, I guess just recently, you know, with everybody in winter right now, you're kind of having some challenges fermenting things in the wintertime. Well, yeah, my house is like the Arctic zone. <laughs> Even though I'm in California, my house, my house is like its own, its own tropical, its own little zone by itself. <laughs> yeah, it's not like deep freeze there, but I guess you know, even 50, 60 degrees, it still takes a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. No, I, my, we just, I guess we're blessed for summer when it's really hot out. Our my house is super cool, so we keep the house. It's usually on its own 50s. If people come over, I'll heat it to slow 60s. Um, so yeah, so a lot of things don't like that temperature. So I usually have to boost the temperature with like a ceiling heat mat or with hot water bottles or something like that, but it's not that hard to tweak it. I was wondering about that. I know other people, I think I've, I've seen, they use like a, a seedling mat. Uh, at least Melanie Hoffman had posted that yeah. uh, a bit back. Yeah, I talk about that in the book as well, um, about temperature and what to use. But yeah, the ceiling heat mat works great. I use that for, I actually use that insulated little cooler when I'm doing kefir when it's cold, because kefir really likes it more around 70 degrees. And then also for the yogurt, I like this mesophilic yogurt a lot. So I make that one quite often in a probiotic chart as well. I'm really about, I really don't like having to cook stuff. If, I'm already cooking enough. I don't really need to cook anything for, for a mess. I have to heat something. So I really like the uh, mesophilic yogurt because you can just add it to the milk and then just like, just like kefir, just let it go. Yeah. It seems a lot easier to, to just do that. It's a lot easier. <laughs> 
Oh, and on the kefir, I guess that you were talking about dairy kefir. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, dairy kefir. That's probably one th- we always have dairy kefir going here. That's the continual. I don't actually consume a ton of that myself, but that's a pretty much a daily part of the diet here in my house. Do you just use regular milk with that, or raw milk, or I don't know if that's because I remember a while ago the whole uh, raid with raw, raw milk. Yeah. I don't know if California cleared that up, but, but we are lucky in California. We have a, we have at least three or four certified raw dairies where I live, so it's pretty awesome. You can get delivered to your door. Um, but yeah, so I use raw milk for a lot of it, but we go through quite a bit. So I also just use um, organic cream top, you know, unhomogenized milk. And I go through like how to choose milk in the book as well of why and why, you know, why you really don't want to stick with a full whole milk, not a reduced fat milk. That's cool. How, how many different um, little how to's and even different little scientific things you have in here. Oh, thanks. And some of these recipes are even on your site too. So if, if people want to get just a little bit of taste of uh, what's in the book, some of the recipes I noticed were on there. The one thing I thought was kind of interesting was say fermenting different roots or, you know, tubers like potatoes and sweet, sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned in there something about when you soak them or ferment them, the acrylamide is either reduced or significantly eliminated. Yes. Then they won't burn either. Yeah, it's interesting. I know a lot of people are worried about acrylamide, you know, when you make bread or when you make fries. Yeah, I didn't realize that that's actually reduced when you ferment it or even soak it, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty. And then also the starch content is a little bit further down. And then soaking it, cooking it, and then of course, you know, soaking it, cooking it, um, or fermenting it and then preparing it. And then if you put it in the refrigerator, then you have an added benefit of having resistant starch as well, which is great for people who need to watch their glycemic index of their food. Yeah, so all you guys out there, you know, that love fries, maybe you should ferment them first. You should ferment them first. <laughs> and also, if you add that extra step where you cool them and reheat them, that resistant starch is what feeds, that's a prebiotic, so that feeds the probiotics, which is a nice, nice thing to do. You cool them and reheat them? Yeah, so if you ever make potatoes, like if you ever made Rice is the same way. Um, if you make rice, cool them and then reheat them, or even just cool them and eat them cold, like like sushi rice or um, like potato salad, things that you would serve cold. They, be, they form what's called a resistant starch. It's really a fascinating field that's really coming out now. And for me, I have to, since I have blood sugar regulation issues, that's one of the only ways I can eat those starches. Oh, okay, it's interesting um, the different things you learn. I remember something that um, Sandra Katz has said in his Art of Fermentation. Something about someone was about to eat a, or they ate some kind of poison mushroom or a poison tuber, but they had fermented it first, so it didn't have that same effect. Maybe the, the acrylamide thing is kind of the same thing. Yeah, or could have just maybe neutralized some of the anti nutrients that were in there. I guess that's just like. You know, the organisms, say in compost, you know, they're just breaking things down, making everything into something readily available that you can actually, you know, bring into your body. Yes. I've seen a lot of recipes out there. And I noticed in your recipe book, you know, about fermenting salsa, you have quite a few recipes in there, uh, salsas and chutneys. They only go between five and 24 hours. Do you really see that much difference yes. fermenting things for that short amount of time? I do because typically you're making those during the warmer. Those are all fruit-based ferments. Like tomatoes are a fruit, right? So they're a higher sugar content. And the temperature is usually warmer in your home when you're fermenting those. So they will go faster. And with the anaerobic jar especially, you don't normally make large batches of that either. Most people aren't making a gallon of salsa at a time. Um, so those do tend to ferment pretty quick. And you will, you'll taste, because you're not adding any vinegar, you'll taste that kind of vinegar fermented flavor pretty quickly. 
Um, in my house, since it's really cold, I'll often have to do it overnight. Like, you know, start in the afternoon and then wait till the next morning. But some of them go a little bit longer. Like cranberry chutney, I'll do a lot longer. Because cranberry chutney I'm making in the wintertime, so it's a lot colder. Yeah, true. Does it actually, you know, get going, you know, kind of bubbly? Yeah, or? yeah. you see bubbles with the airlock. That's one thing that's nice about those jars is you can see the bubbles happening and you can see the you know the airlock little thingy bopping up and down it's kind of fun that's definitely one big plus over uh say like a a ceramic crock you can see what's inside well also those ceramic crocks are typically pretty large um so you're kind of constrained i don't really want to make you know like i don't want to make make a half gallon or a gallon of mayonnaise so um so having a small jar is kind of nice and you use um all phyto jars right um, I use all the probiotic jars, so it's the phyto base with the, okay. the specialized lid and the airlock. Yes. Not for kombucha, gotcha. though. So the only things I don't use them for would be kombucha or vinegar, and then you don't need them for natto either. I don't make natto, but I know natto needs air. All right. Have you gotten into any other things like um, miso or tempeh or anything like that? No. I've tasted, um, you know, miso is a year, usually about a year to do. And there's so many, there's a couple of companies that do amazing miso. When you use such a small amount for such a long time, it doesn't really seem worth the effort to do it myself. So I don't. <laughs> and then the tempa thing, I can't do tempa because that's a, that's got wheat. Um, and the, what was the other one? The nat, I've tried natto. I'm trying to like natto. I'm just not for some reason digging it. <laughs> Uh, I know you, um, you also said you're soy free too, at least, uh, on your tagline, whole food, yeah. add a twist of probiotics, gluten gone. I try to stay away from soy unless it's fermented soy. So I can do tamari, but, um, for the most part, it's pretty minute and I just, I don't eat tofu or tempeh or anything like that. So since you've been fermenting things and, you know, I'm sure you probably run the, everything in your household in terms of food, because, you know, you have all the scientific information. Have you noticed really any health benefits from eating, you know, fermented foods and drinks? Personally, or? Yeah, actually, um, yeah, personally. And since you also help other people. Yeah, I've had people, I mean, I've had people who were pretty low on energy and had different issues with their skin and tried taking probiotics, you know, supplements, they got nowhere. And then once they started adding these fermented foods, their gut started to heal my children are really healthy. I mean, most of my friends' kids get sick pretty often. They have strange, you know, desires to eat a lot of sugar. My children are not really driven by sweets. They really like tangy, sour things. So they, and they also, when they do get a sweet, they seem to have that ability to stop at a small portion, not really want to push it or eat more, even if they could. So I see that kind of hormonal response for a lot of people is gets disturbed. Because I don't think they don't eat enough cultured foods. Do your, your kids ever, you know, say go to a birthday party and then come back and like, oh, I've got a stomach ache or, you know, from whatever the junk that they had at the party or. Yeah. You know, they just don't, they're not interested in the junk. They, I've tried really hard to educate them so they can make their own choices. So that doesn't happen. They just don't want it. That's pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, rather than, because I, I know um, a lot of different parents, you know, they kind of force their, their food philosophy on their kids and. I think when you get them, you know, more interested in what you're doing and, you know, in the process, they kind of embrace it a little bit more. Yeah, they seem really, I mean, they, my children could teach the class on fermenting or even how to read a food label or figure out what carbohydrates, protein and fat there is and why certain kinds of fats are good. They're pretty, they're pretty well versed on this stuff. That's pretty cool. Uh, what are some of your kids' favorite things to eat? You know, in, I guess in terms of fermentation. 
Oh, oh, they love fermented green beans. They like those cherry green tomatoes a lot. Um, my daughter is a huge fan of the persimmon chutney. It's one of her favorite things, or cranberry chutney. They love kefir. A lot of times they just eat it plain. I don't have to add any fruit or anything. They just, oh, and they love that avocado. I have an avocado cilantro garlic dish with a kefir in the book. That's probably one of their favorite things, but I don't make that unless it's summer because it's the stuff you need is not in season until summer. Sounds like a guacamole. Yeah, but it's kind of like a, it could be like you could drink it as a cold soup. You can use it as a dip, but it's really, it's really delicious. They like sauerkraut a lot. They eat a lot. They love kraut. I usually, I, that one, those are things I have to, you know, say, look, it's a condiment. Don't just, you can't just eat like a bucket of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know um, since you said um, alcohol doesn't kind of mix well with you, there's like no beer, no wine, no meat or anything like that. Um, yeah, I haven't made those. I've tried, you know, we've gotten gluten-free beer before to use for recipes. Um, and my husband drinks that stuff, but I've never done well with alcohol. So I just don't, since there's no nutrition in it, I just figure skip it. Yeah, true. I mean, if it's not adding to your life, then if it's actually hurting you, then why bother? Yeah. Well, even back, even back in my twenties, I was just a cheap date. I just never could tolerate more than like an ounce. (laughs) (laughs) And like you said, everybody's different. I mean, our, our bodies react to different things. Yeah. Maybe that's another thing to bring up. I know there's so many different kinds of diets and you just said, uh, you know, you said in the beginning, um, everybody is different. Their bodies react to different things. Like people are allergic to some things, not allergic to others. Uh, when you have somebody come into, you're trying to help them with food. I guess you don't necessarily tell them to eat a certain diet. You just figure out what's good for them. Yeah. Well, we try to, you know, I try to meet people where they're at. I get people who are vegetarians and vegans. Um, so I'm just finishing up this, um, functional diagnostic nutrition certification so I can run lab work on people. So it's really interesting. I can run these labs and people can see in black and white, you know, what their lab results look and if they're low on B12 or they're low on these different things, their hormones out of whack, we can kind of discuss how their food choices might not be working or working. And then they can decide if they want to adjust them or not. So yeah, I don't have any, I mean, I personally, you know, I try to be respectful and let people figure out their journey as they need to. That'd be interesting to see what my my blood tests are. I've been vegan for uh, maybe a little over 10 years, something like that. But I also have a very varied diet and I try not to eat too much junk food. So yeah, well, vegan is tricky. It's really tricky. And and of course, it's way more forgiving when you're younger. As you get older, it's trickier. Because I was vegetarian for over 10 years. And let me tell you, that wasn't the best choice for my body type. Yeah, everybody's definitely different. Yeah, that is interesting. When you look at um, different populations around the world, I remember reading Healthy at 100 by John Robbins. I don't know if you uh, looked at that. But it just looks like uh, almost like we've evolved in different ways in different parts of the country to say like uh, the Eskimos up north. There's no fresh vegetables, so they have to eat every part of the animal, mm-hmm. you know, the different organ meats and things. I guess it made me think of that. Uh, I saw that in your book, you know, different organ meats and, and stuff. Yeah. Well, I do. I mean, I'm pretty particular about eating animals that they have to be, I mean, for me, my, just from an ethical perspective for me, and they need to be raised sustainably. And I, the one book that really um, I wish I had had available when I was in my late teens was The Vegetarian Myth by Lear Keith. Um, she was a vegetarian and a vegan for quite a while, and she really lays out the whole biodiversity and how our soil and ecosystem really needs the whole range of animals and plants and how they work together. I never understood that when I was a teenager. So Yeah, I've heard of her. I think I, I listened to maybe an hour-long podcast um, that she was in. They've got a 
book. It's amazing. You know, I always tell people, you know, yeah, I've been vegan for like 10 years, but I'm very open to anything I can possibly learn to make connections here and there. So since everybody's different, it's it's nice to know all the different food styles and maybe what's good for some people, not good for others. Yeah. And you'll find you'll need to, usually people have to adjust as they age or progress through different, their bodies just have different needs at different points. So, you know, like if you're pregnant, I mean, like I remember I had some pretty strong, I had a really strong food aversion to eggplant until I got pregnant. Um, it's so like my whole life, I just hated eggplant, couldn't even see the word eggplant in front of me. And then all of a sudden I got pregnant and now I love eggplant. So <laughs> it's weird. Have you ever fermented eggplant? No, cause it's a, it's cause in order for, for me to really like eggplant, it's gotta be mushy. So it's going to be a mushy ferment. I don't like, I don't ferment zucchini either, but same reason the texture is going to be mushy. Uh, so you don't like mushy ferments? I'm not, I don't know. Not for that. Cause like zucchini is great raw, right? And it's great steamed. I don't know. I haven't tried. I've had people tell me it's pretty, they either love it or they hate it. So I haven't tried fermenting zucchini. I guess you can even make a dip or maybe even dehydrate it or something like that. Yeah. Although I do make other mushy ferments. So I don't know. Yeah. I just don't even like eggplant. So yeah, maybe if you get pregnant, you'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even sure why I brought up eggplants in the first place. (laughs) What what do some of like your friends and family think about all this stuff? Do they think you're like kind of out there or do they embrace the whole thing? You know, when you go to a potluck, do you bring some interesting things for people to try? Yeah, I I do bring stuff. People are usually pretty receptive. I definitely have family members who don't want anything to do with it. I have others that love fermenting. My mom is a really great fermenter and she's gotten, you know, I've got my um, brother and his kids, they don't make, they don't ferment themselves, but they like to eat it if someone gives it to them. So there's that. My husband likes it. Um, we don't have a lot of family that close by, so it's kind of limited. I guess you meet a lot of people, you know, with the workshops. So they really like it. They're always, I get a lot of people who come because they're curious or they haven't had it and they're kind of scared, but like their naturopath or whoever told them they need to add it to their diet. <laughs> and they're always surprised at how much, how good it tastes because they've had commercially like available sauerkraut or, or, um, kombucha or bikavasa. They didn't like it. And then when they've had the ones that I prepared, they're like, Oh, this tastes totally different. And then they're usually, you know, they're ready to buy in. Where do people normally find you? I mean, I guess I kind of uh, found you word of mouth maybe it's the same way yeah i mean I'm, i've got some i don't have like i don't have a marketing team or anything so it's tricky but i mean i i've just been putting stuff out there on the internet and you know just networking with other people who are in the real food community here and then like being on different podcasts i've been guest on a couple of different podcasts that's another way to get some exposure which is nice so yeah, I heard one that you're in. I'm always curious. Sometimes I leave it as a surprise when I bring somebody on. Like, I wonder what they sound like. But I, I kind of heard you beforehand. Oh, okay. Uh, Hope it was good. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. Do you have any plans to come out with like any other books, or are you going to go through any other editions of your your recipe book? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm hoping to do um, another book on pressure cooking, like an ebook, and maybe a. Uh, smaller update, you know, when I get more ferment recipes, do a, like in a, a, you know, a smaller book. I'm definitely not taking on something like this. This was a huge project and has a lot of stress. <laughs> so I'm not doing another regular book unless I get a publisher or someone who's going to really provide me with photographer and editing. And Oh, I know what you mean. I even just making the few recipes that I do, which is hardly any, it takes forever because I just want the picture to be perfect. Yeah. And, you know, with ferments, it's it's not like making like a casserole or making some mashed potatoes. 
it, you make it and then it takes like, you know, forever. Some, some things, you know, yeah. say like me, it'll take a few months or something. Yeah. It's a lot, you know, it's a lot of testing because I'm really um, careful that I want these to be replicable for people. So it, how to write it in a way that people can make it at home and get the same or better results is always tricky. You know, just writing in general. I write for um, Paleo Magazine pretty regularly. And just, you know, it always takes me forever to write any articles down. It's not the mostly food. Like, like Melanie from Pickle Me Too and Jessica from Delicious Obsessions, they can just pour. They could just, it just seems like it comes so naturally for them. They can just write and write and write. <laughs> this is not me. Oh, yeah, I know. When I see Facebook updates for Melanie, and they're so funny, I was thinking, like, wow, you know, if only I had that creativity. Yeah, she's great. I'll have to check out um, some issues of Paleo Magazine and see if I get buy a Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or something and see if I can find any articles that you've put in there. Yeah, I've got one coming out. There's a one in the January-February issue, and I just submitted one for the March-April. I guess this year I'll be, I think, every issue. Last year I think I did at least half because I was busy doing the um, second edition of the book, so I didn't make all the deadlines. So I guess um, maybe just a couple more questions on fermentation. Sure. Because I know you've you've covered like tons of stuff in your book, and even on your website, you've you've fermented quite a few different things. Is there anything like you haven't fermented that you'd like to get into, you know, in the future? I'm curious about fermenting um, fish, like sardines or anchovies. I haven't been brave enough to do it. I think it's pretty smelly, <laughs> so, so I haven't gone there. I have tried a pretty scary version of fermented squid and its viscera once at a Japanese restaurant. That was I'm still kind of got heebie-jeebies from that. So I don't know. That's something I would like. I wouldn't mind having someone else make that, and I could try it. Oh man, fermented squid! That was scary. <laughs> I cringe at the thought of that. Yeah. Uh, fermented fish, that makes me think of, um, if you've listened to a past episode, Ariana Mullins, she goes all into how she grew up in the Philippines and they would make this stuff and uh, it's fermented fish that would sit there for months. And then they would take it to the beach as a dip where they would dip bananas in there. Like, yeah. whoa, well, that like was fish interesting. Sauce, right? Like I love like that red boat fish sauce. That sounds awesome. But I haven't True. been brave enough to make that myself. And then I guess if you do make it, it can be, uh, you know, in addition to, say, like kimchi or soups or whatever else yeah. you use. Well, I have a lot of recipes with that red boat fish sauce in them. It's, I mean, it's great for making Caesar dressing, like a Caesar salad type dressing, which kind of got fermented component to it. Yeah, in the future, you'll have to try that out and, you know, let me know how it goes. Yeah, I think <laughs> I need like a separate little fermenting home because I'm sure that's smelly. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm not going to since, you know, I don't do fish, but uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see how that turns out. At least, you know, it's always interesting to read like history too, to see what other cultures are doing. I think like a lot of this knowledge is just kind of lost and it's great to see people out there actually bringing this stuff back, you know, to the mainstream. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I'm also not brave enough to ferment meat, so I'm not going to do salamis or anything like that either. <laughs> I don't really, I'm not really inspired to since there's so many great small craftsmen here who make those things here and where I live, it's pretty easy to grab. So I'm just, there's just a lot more issues with, you know, different types of toxins that I'm just not willing to go there with vegetables because other things are pretty, you pretty much can't get sick. So I'm not. Yeah. I know botulism is kind of a concern with like sausages. Which is, I guess, where it originally came from. Yeah, that's that's kind of scary. I guess, you know, there are right ways to do things. So, right. you know, anyways, um, I guess as we get toward the end, is there like, you know, any kind of last thoughts or say somebody is just getting into fermentation, you know, they just came to one of your workshops or something. 
what would be like some advice that you would tell them, you know, to kind of calm their mind or to encourage them? I would tell them to start with something easy. I mean, if they like carrots and throw some carrots and a salt brine in that jar and wait a few days and you'll be amazed how good they are. Um, don't be scared. I mean, you really can't mess them up. You're not going to get sick. So, or, you know, go out and pick up a, a cookbook or, you know, a recipe book to show you how to do it. Yeah. It's really, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think I do. I, I try to do a decent job of telling people step-by-step step on how to do it in the book. So, but it's pretty simple. I mean, it's just a matter of, you know, getting the right sources, get a good clean salt, some good clean water, some good fresh vegetables, and you're ready to go. Oh, yeah. You know, um, I guess that was one last thing maybe I would ask you just because you mentioned salt. I noticed that you really like the Himalayan pink salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, any any difference that you can taste or is it just, you know, yeah, I just, just I like exclusively that? use that salt now. Um, I really like the flavor. It's a very dry salt. So I used to use when I first started, I tried using that Celtic sea salt and that's a very moist salt. So you're from, it's really hard to get the weight of it correctly because you've got water weight when you're weighing it and the salt weight. Um, and if you're starting out with a moist salt, there's a possibility that it's harboring some mold and other stuff already. So if you do have a moist salt, I usually tell people to try to dry it out on a, on a cookie sheet in the oven under low heat that we can get a more accurate brine made. And then also, um, I prefer not to use sea salts in general because the oceans have a lot of toxins in them right now. True. And then the Himalayan salts just mined. It's a deep mine salt, right? So it's still, we haven't messed that one up yet. Yeah, very cool. Amazing how many different salts there are too. I had done like a whole show on salts and that was really interesting to to learn all that. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's also, I mean, it's got a lot, it's got 84 trace minerals. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know why anybody would ever use table salt. It just doesn't make any sense anymore. It's cheap. (laughs) Yeah, true. So anyways, I mean, I guess as we kind of wrap up the show, say if somebody wants to come out and follow you or, you know, where, where can they find your website, you know, buy your recipe book or Facebook or any other social media that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, thanks. I'm on my website is Lisa's counterculture.com. So it's L-I-S-A-S counterculture.com. And there's a link there to my social media. There's a link to Facebook, which is under Lisa's counterculture. I have a Twitter account, which I almost never use. I have a Pinterest account that I occasionally put stuff up on. I just don't want to spend a lot of time on the computer <laughs> um, posting stuff, so I don't. But yeah, and then my book is available off my website. That's usually the best way I personally put it in the envelope and mail it off to you. You can also order on Amazon as well. And the ebook is available off the website only, not on Amazon. And if you buy the print book, you can get the you can email me and I'll send you a code to get the ebook for five dollars. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah I, I hate when I buy a, like a, a hard copy book and I can't seem to get the ebook at a discount. That's a, a nice thing you do there. Yeah, it's really helpful. Actually, I'm not a huge ebook fan for recipe books, but I do like. I actually use mine quite a bit because I have it in Dropbox. So if I'm out shopping, I can pull it up on my phone and see. If I don't remember all the ingredients for a chutney, I can make sure I have it. So it's kind of candy. Or if you're traveling, it's great. You don't have to pack books. Yeah, true. A nice little shopping list there. Yeah. All right. So everything we talked about on today's show will be in the show notes. I invite everybody to go out to fermentationpodcast.com and leave some comments. You know, maybe you want to say hi to Lisa. And also check out Lisa's site, Lisa's Counterculture, as well as her recipe book by the same name. So Lisa, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun to chat with you. All right, this has been Paul Bates from the Fermentation Podcast, along with Lisa Herndon, encouraging you to put fermentation into practice, ferment responsibly, and get out there and create some culture. Mm